Well, this morning we're continuing in part two of Work Out What God Works In, as we've been working our way through Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians 2, and let me read our passage for us, beginning in verse 12. Paul says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. H.A. Ironside, commenting on this very passage here, said this, I'm reminded of a little girl who listened to a legalistic sermon preached on this text. The minister insisted that no one could be saved by grace alone, but that each person must work out his own salvation. At the close of the service, this little girl innocently asked her mother, Mother, how can you work it out If you haven't got it in. That little girl understood exactly what Paul was talking about here in Philippians chapter 2. You see, some people will take this passage and they'll preach that your salvation is dependent upon whether or not you work out your salvation. As if somehow you could lose your salvation if it's not worked out properly. That's far from what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about working for your salvation, but he's talking about working out your salvation, the salvation that you were given at the moment that Christ saved you. What Paul is saying here is that you must be sanctified. You must be sanctified. He's calling for the sanctification of the believers at Philippi. Last time I told you about two extreme views that are not biblical in reference to sanctification. First, the let go and let God view that says I don't have to do anything in my sanctification because it's all of God who will do it. Then there's the legalistic moralism or external moralism that says I am going to do all of the sanctification myself. It's all dependent upon me. I'm going to show God how good I am, how much I'm growing as I do, 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 do. And they think that by all of their rules and external doings, that they are somehow becoming more spiritually sanctified. But both of those views contradict what Scripture teaches about sanctification. Paul is not telling the Philippians to be passive in their sanctification, but neither is he telling them that their sanctification is totally dependent upon themselves. As I said, it's not an, it's not an either or, it's a both and for us. I'm responsible to work it out, but it is God who enables me to do it. And this all begins at the moment that we are saved. Sanctification begins at the moment that we are saved. 
In fact, this is what we call positional sanctification. The moment that you are saved is positional sanctification. That positionally, you now belong to God. You belong to Christ. We are positionally a child of God at the moment that God saves us. The moment that we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ. We are positionally sanctified, positionally set apart. But at the same time, that is the moment that we begin our progressive sanctification. Our progressive sanctification. That is, we must be progressing in our sanctification as we become conformed to the image of Christ. We're to grow in holiness. That's what the Christian life is all about. Growing in holiness. In fact, Paul gives us this distinction in Romans 6.19 where he says, I'm speaking in human, term in, in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, he says this, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. He's calling us to grow in holiness. Then a few verses later in verse 22 of Romans 6, he says, But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derived your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. You believed in Christ, you were saved, and then the result then is sanctification, that we are to grow in holiness. And for the Philippian believers, this is not the first time that Paul has been encouraging sanctification in them. In fact, look at chapter 1 and verse 9. Notice what he says there as he prays for them in chapter 1 and verse 9. He prays for these Philippian believers and he says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. He's calling them to abound more and more, that your love might grow. And so, sanctification is something that Paul prays for as he desires for these Philippian believers to be sanctified. Now, as I told you last time, there are three aspects to this sanctification back in our passage in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Three aspects to this sanctification that Paul gives here. Or three ways in which the Philippians were to work out their salvation. First, we work it out obediently. Second, work it out reverently. And third, work it out dependently. So let's pick up in verse 12 of our passage and look at our first point. We work it out obediently. Work it out obediently. Notice what he says again there in verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Now, if you were reading this letter, you were a Philippian believer, you received the letter, and you're reading this, and you're reading through it, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 2, and then just flowing down to this text here. You would see this word obey here in verse 12. And it would click in your mind that you have just read about obedience previously. In fact, we've studied pre uh, obedience previously, right? Who was that obedience in reference to? To Christ. 
is in obedience to Christ. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is the perfect example of all of us and who we are to follow. He established the ultimate moral standard of obedience for us as believers. And just as Christ obeyed the Father, so we are to obey Him as well. We're commanded to do this. And what Paul is doing here in verse 12 is he's encouraging them to continue in obedience as he appeals to their obedience in the past. Notice what he says there. He says, just as you have always obeyed. You have always done this. Now this word obey here in the Greek is the word hupakao. Hupakao. It's a compound word made up of the preposition hupo, which means under, and the verb akuo, from which we get the English acoustics, which means to hear or to listen. To hear or to listen. And it's the basic idea of putting oneself under what has been heard. Put ourselves under what has been heard. One Greek lexicon illustrates it this way. It's a focus on action in response to a summons signaled by a knock on the door. So you hear it. You hear it and then what do you do? You respond with actions. That's obedience. You hear what God commands you to do, and we respond then in our actions to what God has told us. That's obedience. Now at the time that Paul is writing here in Philippians, it's probably been about 10 years since Paul's initial visit and founding of the church there at Philippi. About 10 years. He probably had a total of three visits with the Philippians, first at his founding, and then two more times when Paul came and went through Macedonia in his missionary journeys. And so in those visits, he saw the obedience of the Philippian believers. He saw their obedience to Christ. But what did that obedience look like for them? Well, their obedience was displayed in their obedience to who? To Paul. To Paul himself. In fact, notice what Paul says again in verse 12. Not as in my presence only. That is, you were obedient during those times that I was with you. And remember, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? Sent by Christ himself. He has apostolic authority given to him by Christ. And as an apostle, he received direct revelation from Christ. He had that apostolic authority when he was with them. And so what he told them to do, what were they to do? To obey. To obey him. As one commentator put it, to disobey his inspired word is to disobey God's word. He's an authoritative apostle sent by Christ. And the Philippians were obedient. They obeyed him. What did this church show when when Paul was around? 
They showed that they were ready to obey. They were ready to respond in obedience to what Paul had taught them. Because that is what true salvation produces, right? True salvation produces obedience to God. And that's what Paul saw on display in this church. They were an obedient church. They were a teachable church. They were responsive and and quick to obey the word of the Lord as God gave it through Paul. And what Paul does here is he encourages them with this past obedience of theirs. Essentially he's saying, you were an obedient church when I was with you. Great job. You guys did a great job. But he's encouraging them to a greater degree of obedience and sanctification. And he uses that reminder of their past obedience to then encourage them to future obedience. Notice he goes on in verse 12 and he says, But now much more in my absence. Now much more. What Paul is saying here is this. He's saying that their obedience in the past was excellent, but their obedience should excel more and not be dependent upon whether Paul is there or not. You must continue in the obedience that I saw you have when I was there with you. You're to grow in your obedience. And listen, are they going to obey when the pastor's around? Yes, they will, right? Apostle shows up to town. Oh, here's the Apostle Paul. Make sure we're on our best behavior. But what about when he's not around? It's like a child who always obeys when mom and dad are around, right? But what about when dad and mom aren't around? Don't get those cookies out of the cookie jar. Mom and dad leave and they come back and where do they find Junior? With his hand in the cookie jar. (laughs) Not being obedient. It reveals the true heart of the child. You command them to do something, you tell them to do something, will they do it when you're not around? reveals their heart. One commentator writes, the degree of obedience of the child is not determined by what the child does when the parent is present, but by what he does when the parent is absent. Reveals their heart. And the same is true in relation to Paul and the Philippians. Their obedience was great when Paul was around, but what about when Paul is not around? You see, they have a personal responsibility to obey Christ. Whether Paul's around or not. What Paul is saying here is, you have a personal responsibility to be obedient to Christ. And Paul is then encouraging them to grow in their obedience even when he's not around. Because ultimately, who are they obeying? Not Paul. They're obeying who? Christ. He is Lord. Paul's not Lord. Christ is Lord. And he's the one in whom they are ultimately obeying. 
And it's in the context of that obedience that they need to then work out their salvation. You see, sanctification happens in the context of obedience to Christ. That's why he goes on and he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He goes on and gives that command in the context of obedience. Be sanctified. Sanctification happens in the context of obedience to Christ, not by way of eye service to men. In fact, this is what Paul addresses with the slaves in Ephesians 6.5, where he says this, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Same words. With fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. It's about the heart. And we should be growing in sanctification as we obey the Lord. Not to please men, but because we're desiring to be obedient to Christ. In fact, isn't that what we've been talking about with those who are legalists? Those who are legalists, they have an external moralism that seems to be Spiritual maturity, but in reality, a lot of that is just man-pleasing, eye service, trying to show others how spiritual you are, not out of a heart of true obedience to Christ. But Paul is encouraging the Philippians to work out their salvation obediently, in obedience to Christ. Understanding that they have a personal responsibility before Christ to be obedient. And their obedience should be motivated by their love for Christ. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said? If you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. You'll obey me. Obedience should be motivated by our love for Christ. And so we need to work out our salvation obediently, in obedience to Christ. Second, we need to work it out reverently. We need to work it out reverently. Notice again at the end of verse 12, Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now again, this is not working for your salvation. That's not what Paul is talking about here. But work out your salvation. Work out the salvation that you have been given by Christ. It's a free gift, right? Nobody has earned it. You have been given it by Christ. You now are responsible to work out what God has done in you. And that happens first in the context of obedience to Christ, but it also happens in the context of reverence for God. Reverence for God. And this is what I believe is lost in the church in America today. There's a lack of reverence for God. There's no fear and trembling before God. We've lost a reverence for Him. You go into many church services today, And it's just a big show with no reverence for God. 
No fear and no trembling before the God of all creation. A holy God. A righteous God. We've lost a reverence for Him. Now if you remember back at the end of the Christ hymn in verses 10 and 11, what did Paul say there? He said that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every one of them. Believer and unbeliever. Every single one in all of creation is going to bow the knee. And that right there should cause us to fear and tremble, right? That we will bow the knee one day before the King of Kings. That should cause us to fear and tremble. We're going to bow the knee before the Creator of the universe. That word fear there in the Greek is the word phobos, which describes fright or terror. Fright or terror. And trembling is the Greek word tromos, which refers to shaking. Fright, terror, shaking. And that trembling then is the result that comes from the fear of God. Think about Israel, the Mount of Sinai. When Moses goes up on the mountain, what do they do? Oh, there's fear and trembling. Right? There's lots of fear and trembling. Moses, you go up there. (laughs) You meet with that God. We're not going there. But in the evangelical church today, people have lost a fear of God. We've lost the fear of God. One pastor says, Christian culture today portrays a God who is too much our friend to ever give us reason to tremble. But that is to our detriment. When we see the darkness of our own heart, the weakness of our own resolve, the power of temptation to sin, we should be filled with dread at offending God. There should be a fear Not of what He might do to us, but of the hurt we might do to Him. Look, all of us who are believers, we understand that we have been delivered from the wrath of God, right? So that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the wrath of God. We've been saved from the wrath of God. We're not to be afraid of God in that sense of fearing the wrath of God. We don't have to fear the wrath of God. We've been saved from the wrath of God. Christ took that wrath upon Himself for us as our substitute. But there should be a reverential fear that seeks to avoid anything that would offend a holy and righteous God. We should have fear and trembling. And it's this fear and trembling that Paul is referring to that does that. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 28, 14, Blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Look, do you want to be blessed? Fear God. Fear Him. Fear is a good thing for believers because it causes us to recognize our own spiritual weakness and the power of temptation in our own lives, right? Right? 
Fear causes us to distrust self. Which, listen, church, that is a great thing. Don't trust yourself. The culture is going to tell you, trust self, trust self, trust self more. God says, no, don't trust yourself. You can't trust yourself. You cannot put trust in your own flesh. Your flesh is weak. Paul says, wretched man that I am. Don't trust in self. The fear causes us to distrust self. It's a good thing. Fear causes us to oppose pride. It's a good thing. It's not about me. It's about Him. Fear causes us to be aware of the deceitfulness of our own hearts. Fear causes us to dread sin and anything that would displease God. That's the fear that Paul is talking about. And proper reverential fear is a good thing in, the, in our lives. And when we live with fear and trembling, we will then be more sanctified. Because what is that fear going to do? It's going to drive us away from what? From sin. And it's going to drive us to who? To Christ. And in that we are being sanctified. That fear and that trembling will cause us to long for and desire obedience to Christ. In fact, one who trembles at God's word is one whom God looks to. Listen to Isaiah 66 and verse 2. But to the one, but to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. The great apostle Paul even had fear and trembling. He was a man who had fear and trembling. 1 Corinthians 2.3, he tells the Corinthians, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He was there in Corinth. Corinth, where there were... There's a lot of immorality going on there. It was an evil, wicked place in Corinth. And he shows up there in weakness and fear and trembling. And I believe that what Paul is talking about there is that he knew the weakness of his own flesh. He understood the weakness of his own flesh. Oh, wretched man that I am. He understood the battle. I do the things that I don't want to do. Romans chapter 7. He understood the weakness of his own flesh and therefore his total dependence was upon Christ. And as he went to Corinth to preach the gospel, he knew that he had to preach God's word. That's what God had called him to do, to go there to Corinth and preach the word. But he didn't do it in his own strength or his own cleverness. He realized he couldn't do that. I can't go there and preach to these wicked people in my own strength. By my own cleverness? He goes there with fear and trembling. And he has total dependence upon God. You see, too many men think that they have to be clever in their preaching of God's Word instead of preaching the unadulterated Word of God. There's no more fear and trembling 
in our pulpits. They try and be clever to try and draw people in. Seeker sensitive. What can we get? What can we do to get more unbelievers in our church? What do they do? They try and become clever instead of proclaiming the unadulterated word of God. And I believe that if we had more fear and trembling in the pulpits, that we would have more fear and trembling in the pews. What Paul is telling us here is that we need to work out our, sal- our salvation and be sanctified. And we do that in the context of fear and trembling. Because that fear and trembling drives us to Christ. It drives us to obedience in Him. We do that in the context of reverence for God and reverence for His Word. We do that in the context of reverential fear of God, which comes from a deep love and adoration for God. Again, we're not afraid of the wrath of God. We've been saved from the wrath of God. But we should have a reverential fear of God that causes us to run to Christ and distrust ourselves and lose any confidence that we might have in our own flesh. That fear, that trembling, that reverence will drive us to total dependence upon God. And it's then in that context that we'll grow in our sanctification. You want to be more sanctified? Fear God. Fear Him. Be in awe of Him. And you'll be sanctified. Which leads to our third and final point. Work it out dependently. Work it out dependently. Look at verse 13. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul now gives us the reason for which he can even make the command to work out our salvation. Notice he's just commanded us to do that in verse 12. But now he gives us the reason for which he can even make this command for us to work it out. Notice that word for. For. It is God. That word for there, Paul is giving us the reason for his command to the believers to work. To do good work. He knew that they could only work work out what God had worked in. This again here goes to point out that our sanctification is not totally independent from the power of God, right? We can't do this all on our own. Nor is it all of God without any human effort. God is at work in us, but we are also responsible to work out our salvation. There's a responsibility that we have. One commentator says it this way, the responsibility is ours, the ability is God's alone. The responsibility was laid upon us by God, and He also provides the ability to meet the responsibility. Which is exactly what Paul says at the beginning of verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you. 
This is divine power that is working in us. As his children, as the children of God who have been saved by him, it is his divine power that is working in us. He gives us the command to obey and he empowers us to obey. He calls us to serve Him. And He empowers us to serve Him. He calls us to be holy. And He empowers us to be holy. In fact, Thor read that even this morning. He spoke about that in Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He has given us all that we need to be obedient to Him. And we are responsible then to obey all of the commands that He gives us. And yet we know that we can only accomplish this through His enabling power that He works in us. In fact, Paul addressed this with the Galatians in Galatians 3.3 where he said, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What's he saying there? Having begun by the Spirit, being saved by the Spirit, are you now being perfected or sanctified by the flesh? You think that you're being sanctified by all of the things that you do? By your own flesh? By your own works apart from the power of God? Apart from the Spirit of God? Paul is saying there, look, you can't do this all on your own. You can't. We must be dependent upon the work of God in us. And it is His work in us that is the very grounds of our working. But notice what happens when God works in us. Paul continues on in verse 13. Notice what he says there, both to will and to work. That there is referring to the believer's will and work. It's referring to our will and work. But it's not as if we muster up the will or, or desire to do godly work in and of our own selves. God is the one who gives us the will and the desire to work out His will. He works that in us. Only God can produce a genuine desire to do His will. So that whenever you have the desire to obey God, you can thank God for giving you that desire. And then God even grants us the power to obey His will. So that when you obey His will in your life, you can thank God for giving you the power to obey His will. And who gets all the glory? He does. He gets all the glory. One commentator says, a godly will produces godly work. A godly will produces godly work. You might say, but I, but I thought I have some part in this. Oh, you do. You do. Work out your salvation. We're commanded to work it out. Work out what God has worked in. 
And so we can see that sanctification does not happen apart from God's working in us. He must work in us in order for us to be sanctified. But how does God do this work in us? I'm glad you asked. Does God just zap us with will or desire to be sanctified? Does He just zap us with holiness? No, there are means that God uses to do the sanctifying work in us. Let me give you four of them. Four means by which God does His sanctifying work in our lives. The first means is through His Word. It's through His Word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What equips us to do the good work? Scripture. The Word of God. It's the Word of God that equips us to do the good work. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.2, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Do you want to grow in respect to salvation, which is called sanctification? Then he says, long for the word. Long for the pure milk of the word. It's the Word of God that grows us in respect to salvation. It's the Word of God that sanctifies us. That is the means by which God grows us. In fact, Jesus said this in His high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, right? Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is what? Truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus prayed this for all of His disciples, for you and for me. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. He knew that sanctification comes through the truth of God's word. And so we must meditate upon God's word and put God's word in our hearts. In fact, that's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 119 and verse 11. For your word, your word I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you want to grow in sanctification, if you want to become more like Christ and not sin against Him, which is what every true believer should long for, right? That's what we long for. What must you do? Read, study, and meditate upon God's Word. Second means by which God sanctifies us is through prayer. It's through prayer. When we get on our knees before God, we're acknowledging our need and our dependence upon Him, right? That's what we're doing. We're coming before the King of Kings and we're saying, we depend on on you, God. In fact, Paul's going to go on in Philippians 4 and tell the Philippians how they can rid themselves of anxiety and have peace with God. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're also encouraged to confess our sin to God through prayer. 
1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is all a part of our sanctification. We must confess our sins to God through prayer. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, he, where he continually asks God to make him more sanctified. You read through that and he's continually asking God, God, sanctify me, grow me, Lord, make me, in fact, he says in Psalm 119 and verse 35, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. God, make me do this. God, do your work in my heart. What a prayer. What a prayer. He's totally dependent upon God's working in his life, and he showed that through his prayer. And when we pray that, watch and see how God sanctifies you. Third means of sanctification is fellowship. Fellowship. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Fellowship with one another is so important in the body of Christ. I can't emphasize it enough. Listen, church, Sunday morning is the most important time in your life. We're commanded time and time again to practice the one another's, right? How do you practice the one another's? In the context of the local church. We're commanded to, to practice our spiritual gifts among one another. And what is the outcome of that? The edification of God's people. We're edified through fellowship through using the spiritual gifts that God has given to us as we encourage one another. You see, too many people miss out on the sanctifying work of God through other believers when they isolate themselves from the local church. They isolate themselves. And they miss out on the sanctifying work of God in their life through fellowship and other believers using their spiritual gifts to serve them and to build them up and to edify them. You see, the church is a living organism that God uses to grow His people. He grows us through the preaching of the Word, through ministering to one another, and even through, listen to this church, even through confronting one another when we see that a brother or sister is in sin. We're commanded to do that. To lovingly go and confront a brother or sister in Christ who is in sin. Why? So that they would repent of that sin. Be restored in their relationship with God and be restored in a fellowship with the church. Fellowship is very important in our sanctification. 
Very important. Finally, a fourth means of sanctification is through God's providence. Through God's providence. That is, God uses His providence in our lives as a means to grow us in holiness. Think about this. How many of you have ever prayed for God to take you through a trial? We don't pray for trials, do we? We don't pray for trials. But does God take us through trials? He does. Why? Listen to James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then he says in verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's he talking about there? Sanctification. Sanctified through trials. Why does God take us through trials? Because they grow us. Because God is providentially working His plan in our lives to make us more like Christ. In fact, Romans 8.28, we love this verse, right? We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God causes all things to work together for good, even our trials? Yes. Even our tribulation? Yes. Even our hardships? Yes. God causes all things to work together for what? For good. And for our good. And then Paul tells us in the very next verse, Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. He's conforming us to the image of, of His Son. What is that called? Sanctification. Sanctification. And it's all by His providential workings in our lives. In closing, is sanctification something that we do or is it something that God does? Answer? Yes. Yes. This is one of those realities that's hard to grasp, right? But it's true. It's true. Because it's what God's Word teaches. Sanctification takes a f effort on our part. We have a responsibility in it. And yet, it is totally dependent upon God's power working in us. So that when we're growing in sanctification, who gets all the credit for it? Do we get the credit? No. God gets the credit. He gets the glory. But why does God do this? Why does He sanctify us? Look at the end of verse 13. I know some of you already put your Bibles away. Get them back out. And look at the end of verse 13. I want you to see this. Look at what He says there both to will and to work, look at this, for His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. God does all of this work in us for His good pleasure. 
Do you realize that our sanctification brings God satisfaction? Our sanctification brings God satisfaction. And you might ask, how does a sinful human being like myself, although I'm saved and being sanctified, bring satisfaction to God? I don't know. But it does. Because that's what he tells us here. It's for his good pleasure. To bring satisfaction to him. Not only does it bring God pleasure to save us, but it also brings God pleasure to sanctify us. May we be faithful to work out what God has worked in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the sanctifying work that you do in us. Father, help us to be faithful to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us to grow. Lord, we know that you have given us the means by which we are sanctified through your word, through prayer, through fellowship, and through your providence, and even through our obedience to you. Father, may you continue to sanctify us and conform us to the image of Christ. For your good pleasure. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.